Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Whereas large industrials, they tend to ebb and flow with corporate R&D, corporate uh, CapEx spending, etc. And GE is certainly along the lines of that. The chart is definitely in a downtrend, and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet. Invest Talk, over 43 million downloads and counting. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, July 14th, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein. I'm excited for this hour with you to answer your finance and investment questions and give you my straight and unbiased answers. No hidden agenda, just using 20 plus years of investment experience and perspective and a whole lot of data to give you uh, the, the right information, the right tools to help you make good decisions. So this market is uh, interesting and uh, it's always Big news events kind of coming out each day. We are in the midst of earnings season. We have inflation numbers. There was the CPI yesterday, the PPI today, uh, which I'll I'll get into in a minute. Uh, You have different kind of vacillating expectations for what the Fed decision will be at the end of the month. And all of this is bringing levels of volatility that, frankly, if you're relatively new to investing in the stock market, well, you're probably a little queasy. You're not used to this level of volatility. Honestly, this is a more normal market. This is market reminds me a lot more of pre-2008 than it does post-2008. And, you know, that that's, that's frankly a, a healthy thing. Okay, volatility is good. It shakes out the weak hands, gives you opportunities to buy up good values, and there are plenty of those in today's market. So while today's investment situation is different than you've experienced in the past, it just simply means you have to sharpen your focus and do your best to avoid the risks and find those opportunities, and that's what we're here to help you do. So my goal will 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 be to help you understand this market environment, and I invite your phone calls and questions on our anytime listener line, 888 chart live during four to five Pacific time or after hours, same number. You can leave a message and we'll answer it on the next show, just like this caller did. So, did. so let's pivot to our first question now. Hi, Stephen, Justin, this is Mike from Tracy. How do you guys determine a value stock and does the value stock change in different economic conditions? Great show, avid listener. 
client, and I greatly appreciate you guys. Have a great day, and look forward to hearing your answer. Bye. I know the difference in value stocks and growth stocks is kind of hard to grasp for a, a lot of people. Uh, let me try to hash this out. Does it change in different markets? Not really. Okay. Now, do can a growth stock become a value stock at some point? Absolutely. Uh, I think of Apple kind of in that way. It's more of a hybrid stock now. There, there, there's usually a middle period where uh, they're above average. They have above average growth for the the economy, right? They're not just growing with the overall economy, and but they're lower growth than they have in the past. A lot of times because they just got so big, like Apple, and then a lot of large numbers. It's hard to continue to grow at uh, a very fast pace when you're so large. Okay, and so companies mature, the ones that can actually truly grow into the valuations that the market has uh, put on them uh, when they were growth stocks, those tend to slowly migrate more towards value companies. And value is typically more to do with the multiples that it's trading at, price to sales, price to book, price to earnings, price to cash flow, etc. Those tend to be low, lower than the average of the market. Okay. Some are better than others. Some, some, some of those, those metrics are better than others, depending on the industry. For example, price to book in the finance industry is not a great metric, to be honest with you, for the most part, because of all the different accounting uh, chicanery that goes on uh, within that space and the complexities there. Uh, and just not a, a really a great metric overall. Um, but that's what you're looking for are companies that are trading at lower than average multiples to the market. Growthier stocks, they trade at above average multiples. Same type of metrics, enterprise value to EBITDA, price to cash flow, etc. And that's the market pricing in growth, above average growth well into the future. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it, you, you're willing to pay that premium because you have confidence in that growth. What happens in times like you saw over the past few years is the market gets overzealous and they think that all of these names, anything that's in the tech space, in the cloud space, go back to 2000, anything that was related to the internet and, and technology, uh, they, that everything was just going to continue to grow at this crazy pace and uh, putting super, super high projections on what the value will be 5, 10, 15 years from now, what the business will be far out. Okay. The problem is, is that the reality of the situation is most of those companies are never going to reach the hype that the, uh, the investors are putting on it and, you know, internal uh, managers and, uh, you know, the C-suite is expecting for the business long term. So that's the difference between growth and value. And sometimes the growth stocks are in a different sector than it typically is. For example, housing, housing stocks, home builders before the financial crisis were kind of priced like growth, like growth stocks. There was an expectation that these companies were going to just continue to just print print money because the housing market was expected to continue to, to grow. There's a lot of money flowing there. Their profits were very high and they didn't see that cyclical nature of the business. And frankly, most businesses are cyclical and that's why in the good times, the multiples that companies get put uh, that are put on companies in the marketplace are typically too high and 
when the tide kind of turns, just like you've seen over the past six, nine, 12 months, depending on which stock you're looking at, those multiples tend to come down. So hope that give you an overview of growth versus value. There's no finite definition of what that really looks like, but it's a philosophy. It's a general philosophy of trying to find companies that are relatively cheap compared to uh, their expected cash flows going forward and the history history of where the stock typically trades. Now, my focus point today is based on this question. Does a dormant IPO market give us reliable insight into investors' view of risk? Now, according to Ernst & Young, in the second quarter, the global IPO market slowed by 65% from a year earlier in terms of total capital raised. What does that tell us about the sentiment out there in the market today? That's what I want to, I want to touch on. I also want to, I want to look at the higher interest rates for governments and government budgets. How high can they really raise interest rates and not squeeze themselves? And then the changing of the American consumer. How have consumer habits evolved since the pandemic and uh, since the height of the pandemic? Let's just say that. And how will that feed into corporate profits? And then lastly, the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, had some interesting statements in regards to the China audit bill and how regulators here in the U.S. are going to, hints at how regulators here in the U.S. are going to approach these Chinese companies that are listed on our exchanges. So those are the things that are on the docket for me, but ultimately, number one will be you. You're on the docket and uh, your calls. So I encourage you to reach out and give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Let's take a look at the market today. The S&P was down about 11 points, but a big, big rally uh, from the lows of the day. Uh, JP Morgan came out with earnings, certainly weaker than expected. And that was down modestly, about 3 or three or 4%. So, you know, a decent down day there. Uh, but what was interesting was the evolution of the Fed expectations for the Fed meeting later uh, later this week uh, in regards to 75 or 100 basis points. At the close of the day yesterday, there was over an 80% chance that the Fed was going to raise rates of 100 basis points at the end of the month. Now, based on some comments from some Fed, Fed figures, uh, 75 still seems to be the likely scenario, although neither are a lock yet. Uh, it's gone down from 80.3% odds at the close of yesterday of 100 basis points. Now it's down to 44% and 56% that it'll be 75 basis points. So still a little bit leaning on that 75 basis points. And that was uh, kind of walked back, I think, by Fed officials that the market was uh, pricing in uh, a more hawkish Fed just uh, in the near term. And I don't think they're they're probably going to do that. I think they're going to stick with 75. At least that's the trend of today. But we're going to continue to watch this, watch this uh, as we head into the Fed uh, blackout period. I believe it's 10 days before the Fed meeting where they don't really speak or anything like that. So to, to signal to the market, they're going to really need to get out there and, and tell the market what, what they're going to do. And that's typically what they do. They signal to the market by the, behind the scenes or in public that, hey, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. They don't like to surprise the market. And uh, I'm sure there will be a settlement of this over the next uh, week or so of what they're going to do. The PPI numbers came out today, and those were a little bit weaker than expected. The core producer price index 
decelerated a bit from 8.45 to 8.24, the PPI, the full PPI, including food and energy, that actually accelerated uh, just a bit from 11 point, or so about 11 to 11.29. So that was the reading on the PPI number there. Now this is Invest Talk. We're quickly heading into the weekend. How will the market end the week and end option X week? Well, what can it mean for your portfolio? Everyone's situation is different, and that's why we take your calls. And I'm here ready for them at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey, guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. We're going to go talk to Taylor in Philadelphia, looking at SPBO, which is the Spiders Portfolio Corporate Bond ETF. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Yeah. I'm looking to buy it, and I had heard you guys talking recently. I think you had mentioned um, that you saw some opportunity in corporate bonds um, and that you actually liked buying the individual bonds versus the funds. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if there was an advantage to owning the funds, you know, if it was more liquid or less liquid or if it was still better to go in and pick a handful of actual bonds and, and buy those instead? Well, a fund like this is definitely going to be more liquid. Okay. You can intraday uh, trading, you can sell it all at once, as opposed to if you own a smattering of uh, bonds, we do bond ladders, for example, for, for our individual uh, clients. If we want to go sell all of them, you know, we got to we got to work on the pricing. We, we you know, we use a, an institutional platform and try to try to get them sold. But it's not like we can get them sold, you know, in two seconds. You can sell them. Uh, there's typically uh, some small trading costs there, whereas something like this, easy trading costs. Okay. The issue though is that if you when you're taking duration risk and money starts to flow out of these funds, your go your your People are going to sell out that maybe aren't you. You're holding uh, the the fund, and they're going to sell positions at a permanent loss, and that's going to be permanent loss to you, the owner of of the bond fund. So whereas an in, whereas an individual bond interest rates go up, they might go down near term, but that's all paper loss because as long as they don't default, they're going to go back to par. You get maturity uh, to maturity, you get back to your all of your principal, uh, etc. And you don't have to worry too much uh, about that. You just, like I said, hold those to maturity. 
Um, so the, there's more risk of uh, permanent loss in the corporate bond space or the, the fund space, excuse me. Uh, and so that's why we like individual bonds if you have the money, but you need to buy five, $10,000 lots of, of bonds. You need to diversify. So you need a good amount of money invested in the corporate bond space to get that diversification from a duration standpoint, from a credit standpoint, etc. So if you have the money, we encourage uh, individual bonds. If you, you just want liquidity, you don't have a ton of money, something like this SPBO is just fine. Thanks for the call. Now we're going into a break. And on the other side, I'll dig into my main focus point today. It's about the dormant IPO market. So I'm taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, my main focus point today is in regards to the IPO market. And this is a great lesson that all sectors, all parts of the market are cyclical. And there are good times and they're bad. And often it is in regards to liquidity and how abundant liquidity is in the marketplace. And as you would imagine, so far this year, the IPO market is relatively frozen. And if you look at the Renaissance IPO ETF, which is ticker symbol IPO, it's down about 46% this year. And this is the, the, the ETF that invests in the largest, most liquid, newly listed U.S. IPOs. And according to Ernst & Young, global IPO volume sank 54% year over year in the second quarter, while total proceeds, so that's, number, that's total volume of IPOs, the number of IPOs. But the amount raised is actually down 65%. Because remember, there are different sizes uh, of IPOs, and the bigger ones are, are certainly having more trouble. A couple of software vendors, uh, JustWorks is one, and food retailer Fresh Market, they actually withdrew their IPO uh, paperwork on Wednesday, and they don't have any plans to go public at all. And they didn't provide a reason. And clearly, the reason is liquidity has ebbed, and marginal companies are no longer suitable. Uh, there's not enough capital to... You know, to get investors excited to invest in these names, even JustWorks, which is actually profitable. It's kind of, I know, shocking that there are, there are profitable IPOs, uh, but JustWorks uh, recorded a net profit uh, last year, and revenues as of May were up 32% to nearly a billion dollars. So a pre-IPO software company that's profitable, growing that well, you would think that should be able to go to market no matter what's going on. Well, they don't feel like this is the time to do it, and I don't blame them. Uh, and it just goes to show you that uh, you know when you go and chase performance, uh, especially in the IPO market, you you often get burned. And uh, if you look at the ETF IPO from the low, pandemic low was around twenty dollars per share, hit a high of seventy six, and that was what in January, February. Let's see. Yeah, February of last year, kind of when the whole growth market really peaked out. So 
What's interesting is a lot of people are going to say, well, the market's been bad for six months, but uh, you've noticed it's actually been bad for the growth stocks. They peaked about 18 months ago, and that's really when interest rates bottomed and then obviously accelerated uh, in the fall of last year. Uh, but that's another reason why the IPO market just simply because becomes uh, frozen. Uh, you're, ha you're seeing that a bit in the corporate bond market as well where there's not a whole lot of junk debt being issued. Part of it is lack of capital. Others is are these companies are just pulling their their offers uh, because the, the cost of that capital is too high in the IPO market. The valuations are simply too low. And so uh, there's this is the trend uh, of the, in, in the cycle, and you should expect that. And it just shows you the sentiment in the market as a whole is pretty washed out. And I really think that. And what's interesting over the past couple of days is you've seen the the news on, on earnings with JP Morgan. You see the inflation figures a bit hotter than expected, rising expectations of a 100 basis point increase in Fed funds rate uh, at the end of this month. And the market really hasn't broken down. And so this is a lesson you should all take about when the market will turn. It's usually when there's bad news. And the market doesn't go down. And it's same for an individual company. You know, think of all a lot of these growth names that are down 60, 70, 80, 90%, some of them. What you want to look for in a lot of these names that hopefully are on your watch list is, hey, there's bad news. They have bad earnings. Uh, the CEO leaves. Something, something that you would expect the company to drop 5, 10, 15% on that particular news. And, eh. Shrugs, market shrugs it off, doesn't go down, maybe it even goes up. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't react the way you expect it to. That's often a sign that, hey, everything's washed out, the sentiment's washed out, all the, all the weak hands are gone. And there's only left for people to start accumulating that stock again or the market again. And I'm starting to see that a bit uh, right now with the, the market as a whole and in some particular names as well. So. That's my take on the market so, or the IPO market and when we'll find a bottom, not in just the IPO market, but the market as a whole. Now, the next and best talk, the story behind this question, what, which is it, a great resignation or the start of a trend to lock in jobs before the economy gets worse? A jobless survey reveals that 60% of respondents admit to the urgent desire to land a stable job sooner than later. That's story tomorrow for Steve. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use. 
and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com, HackerOne.com. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. 888 99 Chart. Hi. This is a long-time listener from Minnesota. Hi, Justin and Steve. Looking for a quality fund to move some cash I have into here, and hopefully things will start taking off in the second half of the year. The uh, fund I'm looking at is ticker symbol XLI. Uh, it's an industrial one, I believe. I like the top five or ten holdings in it. I know they include like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Honeywell, UPS, and those are all good dividend-paying companies and so forth with yet some room for growth. Just wondering um, what you guys feel about this fund. Is it a good place to hold for a long period of time, three years or more? And um, we will want to listen to your thoughts and feelings about it on the show. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, looking at XLI, the Industrial Select Spider ETF. And when I look at the industrial sector, this is the first one I pull up. And it only has a 0.1% expense ratio, $12 billion in assets. So like you said, it's a good representation of the industrial sector. And frankly, of all the sectors in the in the market right now, the 11 different sectors, this is definitely one of my favorites. I've said this before, many, many companies are, are reindustrializing our country, reinvesting in production and manufacturing here in the United States. And that's going to help uh, those companies that can provide the raw materials, the tools uh, in order to make that happen. And uh, I wouldn't say Raytheon and, and UPS, the top two holdings are some of those, but uh, Union Pacific would certainly be one to move a lot of those goods. Honeywell, uh, a pretty big uh, con uh, industrial conglomerate. Lockheed Martin, once again, along with Raytheon, probably not one of those, but uh, there's 72 different holdings here. So uh, there's a lot of good ones, a lot of just okay ones, uh, but it's a good broad basket if you, if you want to get exposure here. Are there better ones? Maybe. Uh, but you get strong liquidity, low expense ratio, and I like what you're looking at with getting some money to work, which is in the industrial sector. Definitely one of my favorites in the market right now. But understand that this is cyclical and you know what that time frame will look like of how it will play out in the next two or three years. Uh, I think it will outperform the market. Uh, how much? Not sure. Uh, but hey, market going down 30%, it's down 10 and and uh, that's outperformance. That's certainly a possibility as well over the next two or three years. So. Uh, just be on the be aware of that. Understand that this is a cyclical name, and it's going to ride the ups and downs with the overall economy. Thanks for the call. 
Now let's touch a bit on interest rates and governments around the world are seeing the cost of their borrowing go up. And that's a big, big change from what they've seen really since the financial crisis, where falling interest rates made debt cheap to service and despite growing levels of debt. Now, the rich world borrowed 10.5% of GDP in 2020, and another 7.3% in 2021. And they didn't care about the debt servicing costs because debt servicing costs went down because of what central banks were doing. They were keeping interest rates uh, subdued. Now, in May, America's budget officials raised by a third the forecast of their total interest bill between 2023 and 2027 to 2.1% of GDP. The issue there, though, is that they had expected the Fed funds rate to peak around 2.6% in 2024. Well, guess what? The Fed officials or the, the, the odds of a 100 point rate increase, like I said before, is at about nearly half for the end of this month. And that would bring the Fed funds rate up north of that, 250 to 275. So right around that 2.6% rate. And the market is expecting the rate to exceed 3% as of July, into July to, of next year. Britain, on the other hand, they're also having issues. They see debt to GDP servicing ratio of national debt for this year up to 3.3%, which is the highest rate since 88 and 89. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that their debt is linked to inflation, about a quarter of their debt is linked to inflation. Now we have tips here, but it's a very small percentage of the debt that the US has issued, whereas Britain, it's, it's a lot of it. Now, when governments issue long dated bonds, they tend they lock in the rate. In fact, in 2020, the US Treasury saw $200 billion worth of 30 year debt yielding less than 1.5%. Still small percentage of total outstanding debt, but at least they took advantage a bit of that situation. Now, Britain has a lot of long dated bonds, whereas here in the US, we have a lot of short dated bonds. And it's different strategy. And some, you know, in some situations, it can be better to have those shorter dated bonds and 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 because you can print your own currency. That's a big reason. That's why our treasury tends to issue shorter term bonds. And the issue, though, is that as short term rates go up, your funding costs go up dramatically when you are so reliant on those short term bonds. In addition, when central banks are buying up assets, buying up bonds, they t they bring in a lot of the, that interest, they bring in the interest and they typically pay it out to the shareholder to, to the taxpayer. The issue though, is that as interest rates go up, the cost of the central bank of paying interest on the reserves also goes up. So what happens is the, the way QE works is they the central banks create reserves in the system. And then they pay interest on those reserves. And so when rates are very low, well, the bonds that they're holding, think of the yield curve, right? The bonds are holding are longer term and the, the, the rate they're paying on those reserves is very low. And so the, the, the spread there is positive, they're doing, doing good. 
when interest rates go up and you have to pay a higher amount on, on those reserves to fight inflation, that yield curve for the Fed inverts and now suddenly they're losing money. Okay. And so that exacerbates the debt situation in the country because they're not getting uh, billions and billions of dollars in profits from the central bank. And so this is, this is why, you know, there's multiple factors, but this is why I don't think the Fed can go a whole lot higher than they do. They are now because it, their, their main goal is to keep the country or the Fed, the, uh, the treasury solvent, right? The, the, the central bank's not going to bankrupt the treasury. And so that's why I think we're, that's why the Euro dollar market is pricing in fed rate cuts by the end, uh, beginning of next year. And after yesterday's potential move of a hundred basis point hike at the end of this month, the yield curve inverted more. And what that says is the market saying, Hey, they're bumping up against the max that they could raise it without causing recession, without causing insolvency. And remember that when you think the fed is going crazy, they might be in the short term, but they'll always react because their main job is to keep the country solvent. Now let's squeeze in another caller question from the invest talk anytime listener line at eight at eight ninety nine chart. Hey, Steve and Justin, I've got a question about EQT corporation. The energy company and Europe needing gas from other countries. This kind of came on my radar where they, I had read an article where the owner was saying that they thought it would quadruple in size over the next few years. Not really sure I believe that. So just kind of curious what you see looking at it. I appreciate your insight. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, this is EQT Corp. It's an independent natural gas production company with operations mainly focused in the Marcellus and Utica shale basins in the Appalachian Basin, located on the eastern part of the United States, uh, typically in, 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 in uh, Pennsylvania. And as you probably have heard, uh, I like the natural gas producers more than the oil producers. I like them both, but I, I like the natural gas producers a little bit more. So uh, I'm a fan of this and they have natural gas, gas, natural gas liquids, and crude oil, all generated here in the U.S., which I think is good. And so I'm a fan of these type of companies. So it's to earn $7 per share next year, although those expectations are coming down as natural gas has pulled back, trading at $36 per share now. Now, if I look at the charts, let's pull up the chart real quick. It's certainly pulled back with all of the, the natural gas stocks, but it's uh, it's performed fairly well, uh, especially over the last week or so. So it's pulled back from 50 all the way to a low of uh, 30 and change, 31 and change. Now we're at 36. So uh, I'm a fan of EQT. I, I, I think he, I think it's CEO is correct that they're going to continue to grow the demand for natural gas domestically and abroad is going to continue to go up as we phase out coal and the fact that Shockingly, politicians have not pivoted enough to nuclear. I know Japan just talked about turning on some nuclear plants, so I think that's positive for the the uranium space. Uh, but still, the demand for natural gas is continuing to grow. So I like EQT, and I think it is a buy here. Well, I bet a lot of people are amazed at how the investment environment has changed so much over the past year, and. This is something you should not be shocked by, that change is inevitable. Markets often are very different a year uh, into the future than they are today. 
That's why I always, one of the main things that uh, people do when they're looking at investments is they look back a year or two or three years and they extrapolate that out. Oh, it did well over the past three years or five years. And they think, oh, well, that's what it's going to do over the next five years. And it, the, the truth couldn't be, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, typically, uh, there's not a lot of correlation in those uh, previous three or four years to the next three or four years, okay, of a particular fund, for example. And so these times are a reminder of that, that things shift, things are cyclical, and you need to be prepared for any market. You need to have the tools to allocate your capital correctly. And so if you need help understanding whether your capital is allocated, your 401k, your IRA, your trust account, your brokerage account, your Roth IRA, whatever it is, I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial, based in Irvine, California, where we provide unbiased guidance both on and off air, and we practice parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So if you want to set up a free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting, just send us a message through investtalk.com or give our office a call at 800-557-5461. We'd love to help you in any way, and the sooner you contact us, the sooner we can get your portfolio optimized. Next up, we will tackle another caller question, so hang on. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. I have a question for you about Amazon. So your questions keep coming. Question about PE ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance. If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year. Steve and Justin are fearless, so don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve, Justin. I'm calling from San Francisco, KDOW, and thank you for taking my call. My question is, what is the difference between Broadcom and Qualcomm, and do you have a preference? Thank you, and I'll be listening as usual. Bye now. All right, looking at... Broadcom and Qualcomm. Well, I will say they're definitely different. They're both in the semiconductor space, very large market cap companies. Broadcom is a bit more diversified. They make analog chips, so very simple chips for telecom, industrial, automotive, computing markets. Very good company. So uh, certainly should be on everyone's watch list. Uh, long-term, they have consistent, uh, strong return on equity, and I like I like that. Um, whereas Qualcomm, that's going to be a little more sophisticated chips, but targeted towards the wireless market. And certainly that has grown dramatically over uh, the years. And they have very good technology IP. And that's helped their, their business uh, be more consistent in earnings to really skyrocket from uh, $3 in 2019, supposed to make $12.58 this year, $13 next year. And so, so both are, are very good. If I'm going to pick one, though, it's probably going to be Qualcomm. And that's because of that IP uh, and the fact that the world's just getting continue to get more mobile. And I like the companies that have uh, that IP edge over their competitors. 
And uh, so we own Qualcomm for, for some of our clients. So if I'm going to pick one, I'm picking Qualcomm over Broadcom, but both are very good companies. Now let's pivot over to the consumer and the changing dynamics of consumer spending. And what's interesting is that there was a huge shift during the pandemic. Uh, by spring 2020, goods accounted for 42% of household spending in the U.S. That's up from 36% before the pandemic. Services were down from 64 to 58, a $900 billion shift, okay? And that started to go the other way now. Spending on services has now rebounded. This is published uh, on May 27th. And as of uh, in April, spending on goods fell in, in the year to April and only, uh, excuse me, it's 9%, sorry, spending on services is 9% above its pre-pandemic levels. That's down from a high of 19%. That's on goods, excuse me. And spending on services up 7% over that same time. And it's only 3% below its pre-pandemic trends. And there's some interesting trends. Spending on public transportation is still 24% before its pre-pandemic level. Laundry and dry cleaning service, 20% below. But food service, air travel, hotels, those have rebounded well above. So some interesting trends in that space. Uh, and uh, hopefully, I, had more, I wish I had more time, but we're headed to a break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99 Chart. Hi, Justin or Steve. I wanted to get more exposure to the natural gas sector after this pullback and came across a few stocks, uh, Range Resources, Enbridge, and Chesapeake Energy. I had a hard time figuring out which one was better, so I was hoping you could help. Uh, I was thinking about going with Chesapeake, ticker symbol CHK, since they're lowering their share count, have high fund ownership, and what seems like a pretty strong balance sheet. They also have a decent dividend with a low payout ratio, which seems like they can increase over time. They do have a nice 6% jump today. I was wondering if you think it was a good time to get in, or should I wait for another pullback? Thank you for all that you guys do. Bye. All right, looking at a few names, but uh, Chesapeake Energy, definitely, I believe it's the largest of the ones you mentioned, about $10 billion market cap. Range Resources, about $7 billion. And the difference, though, is Chesapeake is a bit more... Uh, a bit more diversified in the regions, uh, Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania, the Haynesville Shale in Gulf, uh, the Gulf Coast of uh, Louisiana, and Eagle Ford in southern Texas. Those are the three regions that they operate in. Whereas Range Resources, they're mainly just in the Marcellus Shale region, and about 70% of their production is natural gas. So they're a bit more of a pure play natural gas company. Uh, I like them both, I would say that, and uh, but like I said, if you're looking for pure play, range resources is the one for you. If you have a bit, bit more diversity, a bit bigger size, 
uh, a better dividend. Like you said, range resources doesn't doesn't uh, pay a dividend. Maybe you're looking for that dividend, which is fine, especially in this industry, which is known for misallocation of capital. And uh, it's good when companies pay dividends like that. So two and a half percent dividend yield. That's that's nice. Like you said, paying uh, buying back shares, uh, etc. So. Pure play, once again, range resources, but Chesapeake of those three, probably the best one. Let's go to Cindy in San Francisco looking at Rio. Hi, Justin. Thanks for taking my call. I'm just wondering if this is a good time to uh, answer Rio. Well, the issue with Rio is that its business is slowing um, pretty dramatically, but it is near some major support. Let me go back here. Yeah, never mind. It's not. Uh, the next big support level, it's going to be around $50. $50. So uh, that's what worries me is the chart technically remains very weak. Uh, it's broke below the recent lows and looks to be going to the next support level, which, like I said, is around $50. That's 54 and change right now. Um, and certainly the economy is slowing. That's going to hurt uh, their the, the sales and the price of their raw commodities. They're well-diversified, good company, but I would be patient on this. Not uh, the top of my list of the commodity names that I'd, I'd want to own, uh, iron ore focused. Uh, they do have some aluminum, copper, diamonds, gold, etc. but certainly very focused on that iron ore. And if I were to own exposure to coal in any way and it would be more uh in regards to um coking coal um so i would, I would be thinking about that exposure as well so overall rio not in the top of my list of, of the name commodity names i'd want to get into uh, especially with a technical makeup thanks for the call cindy well i think that about does it for today's show we'll wrap it up for today's version of invest talk i appreciate you all tuning in and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And get, you can get your anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you leave your question with your review, we will prioritize your answer. We now have surpassed 43 million downloads thanks to you. And you can even leave a brief question. Oh, excuse me. Uh, independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.